Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh, clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're coming at you from the Beetle Barn. Mr. Kyle Lieberger, how how you doing, Kyle? I'm doing good, doing good. <laughs> yeah, man, doing great. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Andrew and I are up here in Hartsville, Alabama. Well, actually, this is yeah Hartsville. Okay, yeah. Yep. Hartsville, Faulkville. It's like you know some pe- some people claim one or the other. I don't understand. I'm in. We're in Faulkville City. <laughs> yeah. Like we're in Faulkville School District and uh, Fire Department and everything. But we're technically in Hartsville, but we're not in Hartsville City. But <laughs> We're like, I mean, I could, like, Hartsville's like a half a mile from my house. Like, yeah, it's so dude. weird. I love this community because <laughs> yeah. as I was telling Alan a little while ago, we went to a gas station to grab, like, uh, some drinks before we went to go do the podcast. And uh, we walk up and there's, like, a dude grilling in front of the gas station. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Smelled good. Walk into the gas station and I see where they, you know, got their little biscuit thing over there. And I see something in there. I'm like, what is that? And I walk over there and it's freaking ribeye steaks. I'm like, is that a steak? And the lady was like... Yes, sir. I was like, I'll take one. Yeah. <laughs> it was like ten dollars. It was like a nice ribeye, dude. dude. So yeah, we had some. I was like, I could live here. Yeah, we had some ribeye steaks. I was like, I'm, I dude, get I've used to this so community. Happy. Oh I've, man, I've never been so caught off, <laughs> so surprised, and so happy by anything. Look, <laughs> yeah, Alabama's gas station cuisine is like top notch. This is a good ribeye. It's a grilled ribeye steak in a gas station. I almost bought two of them. Yeah, we we might have to go back by there and see if they have any left. I was saying for lunch, I'm gonna go back if they got some more. I'm gonna buy me another one. Yeah. So, but yeah, and so that kind of blew that kind of blew. Andrew, he said, "Man, I'm kind of digging this because." So, a little background: Andrew had an opportunity to potentially move up here for work and I decided did. to take another job after school. Almost moved to up here, and he was like, "After we get done with Alan, he's like, man, now I'm kind of wondering if I would have done that. My, my would have known Kyle and Alan, all these guys uh-huh. are sooner. My yeah. life would probably come be up different. here and hunt some big whitetails, have ribeye steaks at your gas station. Well, like, after I, after I saw what Alan's got in his house, his mouth, I was like, man, uh, I should have taken that job. <laughs> moved yeah. up here. Alan's a rare breed, though. That, that, that's not everybody. No, that's just Alan. Yeah. Well, uh, Kyle, uh, this has been a long time coming getting you on the show, um, and it's kind of ironic. Like it's always the guys who live closest to us. We're like, oh, we got to do it in person, and and that's so hard to coordinate sometimes. But we we finally linked up and we're up here now, uh, and excited to be talking to you, man. And I, I want to get a little bit of background from you on just who you are and what you do, and and kind of the I guess the history of Native Habitat Project. Yeah, I, I feel like I've already been on here. Like, that's just seeing you guys so much. I feel like I've already been on the podcast. But <laughs> yeah, yeah um, so I'm a forester. I went to Alabama A&M and got a forestry degree, and and uh, was I worked at Swan Creek, uh, WMA, for three years while I was in college, and then uh, I guess 2017 I graduated and uh, and started buying timber as a private forester, and so I would drive around just a lot of back roads just looking for timber and meet with landowners um trying to like oversee their forests being managed um having them logged and uh so i started doing a lot of like savannah cuts uh which so i was removing a lot of the garbage trees and and leaving some more desirable like upland savanna species which is kind of opposite of what a lot of folks do because mm-hmm. you can make more money just cutting your a lot of your upland hardwoods but um I was, you know, seeing what was regenerating under those canopies, seeing what was on the roadside, driving around all these rural places. And, uh, like, when I'd see something, I didn't know what it was. It just really bugged the heck out of me until I figured out what it was. And uh, and there's, I mean, there's about a, 
a million stories I guess I could tell the uh, that kind of could tell the story of the origin of Native Habitat Project but um, you know it all goes back to wildlife that was my real passion is managing wildlife and uh, there's a hunting property a few miles from here that um, I was managing at the time and I was just started cutting down cedar trees and uh, it was 40 acres only had two openings and I mean all these openings combined were maybe half an acre to an acre and uh and so i started cutting down cedar trees trying to make them bigger and while doing that um unknowingly kind of helped this savanna or and or grass and i guess it was a limestone barren but i didn't know that at the time i was trying to build the soils up and turn those openings into food plots and so i even sprayed like the center i sprayed and tried to plant food plot mix on it and i'm talking it was basically like a gravel parking lot that's what it looked like but it was a natural like a natural limestone barren and uh and uh the, so the middle was dead when i killed it that year in like 2017 and the surrounding that i'd cut down all the cedars at started coming up with all this crazy stuff butterfly weed and liatris and i was like daggum i like what is this stuff um rattlesnake master that was one that caught my eye and uh so i started taking pictures and and I'd shared it with a friend who's a botanist, and he was like, man, where the heck is this place? Like, So we went out there, and he was, like, fired up about it. And uh, he was like, this is a limestone barren, so it's like a like a terrace off the side of a mountain. So, like, you know, just think of, like, you know those benches? And so this bench was just really shallow limestone, and uh, and on this bench was, like, man, probably... I need to I need to make a list, but like six or seven county records that don't grow anywhere else in our county. Um, like probably five or six state records now. Uh, that's where I found Durand Oak for the first time. Um, for not not Alabama, A. L. Living did an article and they told they put in there that I found Durand Oak for the first time in Alabama, which is is like it's really common down in the Black Belt. It's like a you see it everywhere, but in the Moulton Valley, um, the I guess north of the Cumberland Plateau, there had never been any Durand Oaks documented. And so now we found like 20 populations of them. They're everywhere around here. Just nobody ever stopped to look at them. But that was the first place I found it on that limestone. And so that place really got me fired up about native plants and wildlife. And I was, you know, I watched how this place got better uh, for wildlife as I brought in more sunlight and watched this grassland come back. And uh, then I long story short i guess i started making posts about different wildflowers and stuff and and uh people were really seemed to enjoy that seeing what was around here just growing wild there's a lot of things people would see and they're like man i can't believe this is growing here in alabama and uh so then i started making videos and then uh that went you know blew up and uh what we do now is just make a lot of educational content about prairies and grasslands and and managing wildlife habitat and things like that. So that's kind of what the Native Habitat Project is. There's a, a, a lot to it. I got a lot going on. That's a that's a it's hard to hard to narrow it down into five minute. Yeah, no, I, I've got to bring this up because <clears throat> the interesting thing about uh, the Native Habitat Project, and we're going to get into uh, talking like why is this important for um, you know habitat managers or, or you know especially private landowners or even guys that hunt publicly and uh kind of start look at some of these different species but is how you got interested in the curiosity of wanting to learn more about some of these species that you weren't familiar with because i'm guessing you didn't learn about did you learn about any of those species really back in school at no all? none of them and that's one of the things that um bothered me i was like man how did i not learn about this stuff and in, in forestry school i mean i w- was in school for six years i mean 
and I worked for the State Fish and Wildlife for three years and learned about none of this stuff. Like Forbes, everybody ignores them. Native grasses, everybody ignores them. Sedges, I mean, if it's not a tree or a food plot, like wildlife managers ignore it. And and to me, those Forbes and grasses and sedges and everything else, I mean, that's the foundation of it all. Um, trees, you know, oaks, they do their thing. Um, and they're great. I mean, we need more oaks. They they do a lot for for uh, ecosystems, but that's not the you know when you're talking ha- like habitat, like cover and nesting and seeds and things that attract insects. Like you can't compete with forbs and native grasses. And that's that's one thing I, I noticed. And I was like, man, we're we're truly messing up. And there's there's folks have been saying that for years. Uh, like Craig Harper. I mean, he's been saying that stuff for a long time, and people haven't been paying attention or, or listening, but. Um, that's uh, that's uh, something I feel like hunters need to pay more attention to. Yeah, and I feel like it's a good kind of. I feel like it's a good time to be having this conversation because first of all, we just left Alan's place and we just got done interviewing him, which people heard that probably last week on the podcast. And he was talking about on his places where he started focusing more on that that baseline habitat rather than food plots, and how it immediately made a difference for him. And people can go and look at what he's taken in alabama i mean upper echelon of top of the top line bucks for alabama and uh at the same time we're we're seeing bobwhite quail are gone essentially uh turkeys possibly declining and just other stuff you know like people having problems on hunting clubs like oh we're not killing as big of deer as we used to kill or even on public lands and uh from my perspective it kind of seems like the habitat issue is kind of coming to a head at some point, I guess. I don't, I don't know, but I'm, I'm really glad to see guys like yourself talking about it because it, it makes sense that if you take away the, the stuff that the deer and the turkeys and the quail are supposed to have, you know, they're not going to thrive, right? Yeah. I mean, our dominant ecosystem for the state of Alabama was grasslands, grasslands and savannas. You drive around now and it's closed canopy forest or it's mowed or it's overgrazed or it's farmland or it's a neighborhood. I mean, there's nothing that's not getting mowed. Even on hunting properties, people just get too bush hog happy. And I mean, that's the, the turkey I killed this morning. This crop was full of sedges, rushes, um, grass seeds, and millipedes. I mean, and grass, grasses, sedges, and rushes. Like, when have you ever heard a, a, a wildlife manager say, How can I increase the sedge diversity on my property? I mean, but that's like 90 percent what was in this turkey's crop was sedges and nobody talks about it in fact people would see it coming up in a food plot or something and think it would, they'd try to get rid of it but those are the native native sedges and grasses and things that are feeding wildlife and and that's what's that's what's greening up this time of year putting on seeds so your sedges come in early and they're seeding out and that's why they're consuming those seeds right now um you know right after those sedges it's wildflower so you see a lot of wildflowers blooming right now sedges bloomed real early so now they're in seed wildflowers are flowering those flowers go to seed and turkeys will be eating those seeds here in the next over the next few months there's things that flower later in the summer too but then you got warm season grasses and those late blooming wildflowers and those are blooming way later in the summer and then those are dropping seeds feeding things even throughout the winter um, and so it's, you know, there's seasonality to it. Um, right now, the thing that's going to seed is sedges, and and, uh, and that's why they're consuming those mostly. What's what's pollinating right now, by the way? What do you mean? Uh, I don't know. I, let me say this. 
so I'm very sensitive to pollen, and that's why I bring this up. Oh. So, been, so uh, I was out on some national forest uh, just a few days ago. That I was telling you about where I scraped on on turkey, and dude, you could see the pollen in the air, and I hadn't seen that the last few weeks. I'm like, what is pollening? Because it was wrecking me, dude. I'm talking sneezing, <laughs> yeah, coughing, and I'm like, what is going on? And like, it's not pine. I mean, pine trees seem to uh, pollinate. That's why I pay attention the most. Like early, like early, early spring, almost late winter. If it's warm, it seems like they pollinate. But like, what's pollinating right now? It's like wrecking me. It's it's going to be like oaks or it's like some of those trees. I mean, there's, I mean, the oaks are probably already pollinated, but like it could be, it could be some species of pines. Um, pines are probably doing a lot of it right now. And then um, it's not flowers. That's one thing people confuse because if something's flowering and has a really attractive flower, that's that's a plant that doesn't wind pollinate. It needs to attract insects to pollinate, so it's not dispersing its pollen in the air. So usually people see, you know, they get sick and they see like goldenrod, and they're like, that's got to be it. No, it's not. It's a goldenrod doesn't put pollen into the air like that. But it's a there's it's a mixture of things this time of year. Everything's everything's putting out pollen. Really, it's a it's a it could be a mix of all sorts of things. Now, well, Andrew, what you get? Well, I was, I was going to say, going back to how things are managed these days, I kind of want to dive into that a little bit uh, further because I just want to remind people that you just said that Alabama was mostly grassland and savanna. Can you dive into that a little bit deeper? Yeah, that's our dominant ecosystem, our main ecosystem. We had more grasslands than we had anything else. Um, I mean, up this way, we had full-blown prairies where there wasn't a tree in sight for miles i mean you got down there um where was that um i think it was talladega jake was looking at um these old um he was looking at these old witness trees so like these survey corner trees from back in the day and they mark the tree if it's they find the closest tree to a corner and they identify that tree and say that's the corner marker there's there's a there's places where like you know a lot of those places they couldn't find a tree and so they it would it would be hundreds of feet until the next tree. So they have to mark they have to identify the corner tr- the tree closest to the corner, and then they have to identify tree uh, bearings off of it. And so like another tree. And so some a lot of times it would be hundreds of feet before you find another tree. Like most of the time, like trees couldn't fall and hit other trees. Like even like that's how a lot of our savannas even work. like in Talladega. Yeah. If anybody's familiar with Talladega now, it ain't like that. No, it is some areas where they're trying to manage it better, but even there, it's still too dense of a savanna. Um, and so you had a, a, it was dominated in grasslands underneath. You had those overstory trees, um, oaks, and so it's a lot of oak, hickory, pines, so long leaf, short leaf, you know, post oaks, blackjack oaks, and those are the trees I look for now to kind of find those old uh, savanna remnants. But yeah, that was our dominant ecosystem because we, we burned back then we had everything was fire adapted so those those things needed fire or they needed grazing animals and those things are gone now we just when we take our hands off of it and just do nothing um it turns back into forest it turns closed canopy and you lose that grassland aspect underneath and then there's no cover and then you lose quail and then you start losing your other ground nesting birds and we had prairie chickens in Alabama. Yeah. I was, oh, let me tell you, that document, the, yeah. the whole thing y'all have done with the booming grounds, and yeah. like Nick's been showing me some of the footage, fascinating. So incredible, man. It's, it's, I can't believe nobody's talking about it. It's, it's sickening that nobody's talking about it. You have that. I mean, can I talk about that? Oh, absolutely. Y'all go for well, it. T- t- can you talk about what is a prairie chicken? Because a lot of our audience isn't going to know. So a prairie chicken is like, 
um it, it's uh the craziest looking bird you've ever seen you just you need to google it if you don't know what a prairie chicken looks like they make these crazy noises they like make these like booming noises yeah yeah it's and like uh, drumming you know you got these grassland obligate species like specialist species like bob white these things like the guys up there are like bob whites aren't grassland obligates like these these are they're not specialists he's like bob whites aren't specialists um prairie chickens are specialist species and i was like that's the craziest thing like because down here like you think of a specialist species something that has to have certain type of habitat you think of quail and they're telling me nope it's it's uh it's prairie chickens and so there used to be first of all there used to be 22 million acres of prairie in illinois and now there's fewer than 2500 original acres of prairie left that's intact can you repeat that real quick yeah 22 million acres now there's fewer than 2500 left all turned to farm all turned to cropland and and overgrazed pastures and i mean all that diversity is lost and there used to be i guess in the in like the late 1800s and at the peak there was anywhere from I think it was 10 to 14 million prairie chickens in the state of Illinois, the prairie state, Illinois, the prairie state. And then now there's fewer than 150, 150, 150 in one location in the state. They used to be across the entire state, 10 to 14 million. Mm-hmm. It's insane, man. Like, and nobody's talking about it. Not a, Nobody's batting an eye. Like, it's insane. Well, and on the other side, too, correct me if I'm wrong, but there used to be elk and bison in Alabama. Yep. Yep, yep. And uh, we had Madison County across north of the river, um, even south of the river. Like, it was wide open prairie. They found prairie chicken bones along in a cave along the Tennessee River. Um, I mean, so we had prairie chickens there, so it had to be wide open prairie. Um, and so we had bison trails even in Morgan County here. Not far from Allen's place, there's an old place where they bison used to, like, dust. You, and it's, uh, you can tell by the plant species there that's uh, me getting off into another story well not to get too sidetracked but like the, with the prairie chickens like i got experience i had never heard about prairie chickens until about two years ago when uh maybe three years ago uh our buddy nick adair from the gun out yourself podcast got back from a trip in south dakota and he brought back uh, or he had just got back his uh mount prairie, his prairie chicken mount and it's the first time I've ever seen one person. Like, that's a cool, cool bird. It's, it's, it's like, I think it's a type of grouse, uh, or, or similar yeah. to like, it's, it looks similar to sage grouse. Um, they're not sage grouse, sharp tail grouse. Uh, but again, they, they have very, like the males are very distinct with their air sacs and everything. Beautiful bird. But I got to go hunt them for the first time in South Dakota this year. And, uh, let me just say, I missed a bunch of them. Didn't, didn't even touch a feather off any of them with the dogs <laughs> and with my shotgun. It was very embarrassing. <laughs> but, uh, just put it out there for thousands of people to hear. But anyway, uh, got better throughout the season. But seeing, like, that habitat of where they're at, and then, again, I didn't know anything about this until Nick brought it up to me. He's like, dude, we used to have prairie chickens in Tennessee. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. He's like, again, all of it grassland. And he's like, he even brought up, like, probably, again, North Alabama, you know, potentially had them as well. And it's kind of interesting. I hadn't heard about the, the bones and the caves and stuff in, uh, off, um, you know, the Madison uh, area in the Tennessee uh, Valley area. But um, he's like, yeah, they used to have prairie chickens in Tennessee up until a certain date that they – were pretty accurate of when they were here uh, and then they're they're gone and it's like now it's like the same thing with illinois 
And it's just an interesting factor because it used to be so prevalent. I had heard stories about like the marketing hunting days, how easy it was for hunters to go and catch, not even kill, but catch. Actually, the interview you guys did with Nick, I think up there with that biologist in Illinois, I think he might've talked about it a little bit, but like you could like catch them. Like you even have to go shoot them. Like they do drop nets and stuff like that potentially yeah. uh, for harvesting for, uh, for the uh, uh, market hunting days. And uh, it's just crazy. Like how that was such a thing. And it's now like, you know, you think when I think of prairie chickens, I'm thinking South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, stuff like that. It's like where you have to go to find prairie chickens, but they used to be all the way down to I think I think that ball just said all the way down to almost like Louisiana area. Like it was yeah. like they had one of the largest ranges of any game animal in North America at one time when it was mostly prairie. Yeah, I mean the prairies are gone, man. Like we've destroyed them all, and and with them go goes the wildlife that depend on them. But nobody, it's, it's just. That's man, one of the things that fires me up so bad is like nobody talks about it. We're planting trees. Plant a tree. If you want to help the environment, plant a tree. We have more trees in Alabama than we've ever had historically. Like we should be I should be holding a campaign to kill trees. Like that's what we should be doing. Hey hey, if you buy a t shirt, I'll kill some trees. That's what, <laughs> that's what that's what I should do. But it's uh it's it's just crazy, man. It just blows my mind that we had these awesome ecosystems that just go totally unappreciated and it's because they were the first things to go. Like they were looking for the richest open ground to grow crops on. And so everything around here was turned to cotton field. You go to Madison County, good luck finding a prairie remnant. Between mine and Allen's place, I can find 10. I mean, it took me, it's taken me years to find them, but you can find these little, like, quarter, or not even that, like a tenth of an acre, little corner of a road or something that still has some prairie species on it. But you can't find that in, in Madison County. It was all turned to cotton field, every bit of it, and mm-hmm. it's all gone. And it's that's, at that point, like, one interesting uh, point is the seed banks. Like, after so many years and potentially hundreds of years those seed banks are depleted because they're not able to seed correct yeah totally Ex- gone. explain the seed bank well you have these wildflower species um you know things like phloxes and, and i mean there's hundreds hundreds of grassland species they've a lot of them have really hard seeds and so when they drop these seeds think of like think of like tiny beans and so these things can stay in the soil stay dormant for for years and years before they um, before they germinate, like if they get the right conditions, they can germinate. Um, and even that, not even that, but even like basil leaves. So like in closed canopy forest, you might see two or three leaves. Like over here between mine and Allen's place, there's a place where there's light poppy mallow. It's the only place in North Alabama you can find it growing. In the woods, there's hundreds of little basil leaves of, of light poppy mallow coming up where it's just like one or two tiny leaves. But out in the prairie, you know, one plant's going to have dozens and dozens of giant leaves and so those little plants are staying there they can stay there living for decades sometimes until they get sunlight and then they take off after you know 50 60 years of no fire closed canopy forest those things that have just been barely hanging on i mean they can't take it anymore they can't flower they can't go to seed and they disappear and so closed canopy forest can cause that mowing can cause those things to just disappear um overgrazing things like that and just over time those plants are gone and and that seed bank you know if it's not allowed to express itself in enough time it can disappear as well and i think one reason that people who interest who uh listen to the show would be interested in this is because contrary to popular belief a prairie grassland type ecosystem can support the most life right yep yep it's a, a 
It, well, that and it can feed. I mean, the amount of food it provides is insane. Um, food and cover. I mean, just for whitetails. I mean, just like yeah. where's Craig Harper's books? Probably in in this build or in this room somewhere. Um, but it's like you open the first page of it, and it's right like there. that might be it. Yeah, that that's my first book that I ever bought that had uh, native plants in the back of it. Mm-hmm. And like the first thing he says in that, it's about deer and food. It's a food plot book. Mm-hmm. First thing he says in it is before you do food plots, you should focus on your native habitat type, you know, stuff first. And, I, and that, that book was awesome. But anyways, in that he, he states, you know, there's in the closed canopy forest, you're talking like 50 pounds, an acre of food for a deer. And in a grassland, you're talking 2,500 plus pounds of food an acre for a deer. And I think, well, I think is it a doe needs like 20, I think it needs like 2,000 or 2,500 acre or 2,500 pounds of food a year to survive. I believe that's right. So, you know, think about how many acres of close canopy forest it would take to to keep a, a doe alive. Is what it, I'm not good at math, but what is that like? 20, 40 acres? I don't know. Uh, yeah. A bunch of acres. What takes one acre of prairie to keep that, you know, feed that doe for the year. So Keep her healthy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's insane when you start thinking about that, how, when you have too much close canopy timber. 50 yeah, acres. 50 acres. Like, you got 50 acres. It takes 50 acres to keep a doe. You can have enough food for a doe to survive. Now, <clears throat> yeah, and this is fascinating. This is definitely, we're going to talk a lot about this from, a, like, a whitetail manager standpoint. But if you think about that, you know, people talk about like some of these deer, like, man, they're, they're, you know, they travel that, you know, they're not always on my property and all this kind of stuff. Like they have to have such a huge home range. And part of that is the food source capabilities. It's like, if they're only like a food plot's only providing food dependent, like what, and this would be interesting discussion as well, like food plot versus like the native grasses, native habitat, native forage. But it's like, if you're relying just on mass crops, you know, it's only producing mass for a certain time of the year. Yeah, a couple months maybe, maybe a little bit longer, depending on you know how all the oaks drop. But still, if if it's taking what, roughly like what you're saying, you know, on average, say fifty you know pounds of food or forage that close canopy uh, timber is providing over a year, uh, and a doe's needing roughly twenty five hundred pounds to survive, so fifty you know fifty yeah. acres roughly, that's going to make your deer and your areas have such a larger home range just to survive not even express their full potential but just to survive they have to cover that much more ground which they're going to burn more energy doing yeah. that versus if it's very highly nutritious food in a compact area that has literally everything they need they won't have to travel so long they can eat more they don't have to probably eat as much because it's more probably high density food if i had to guess in a general area and uh, from a buck standpoint this is just a thought maybe you know we can talk about this at some point in the episode if you have a very high density of high quality food in an area where you do a ton of this habitat management for native habitat, native forage, um, if he doesn't have to travel so much, he doesn't have to burn as much energy. He can get all of his food in one general area, less stress, probably has a better chance, especially if he gets age on to express his full potential versus if he has to travel thousands of acres in order to get everything that he has to have in order to survive. Yep. That my right here behind the, the podcast studio i mean it's like three acres of grass and i've done out here and this is where i grew up i bought my parents a place three years ago and i I started letting it grow up i guess about six years ago now and uh, when i bought this place i put a camera up down there i hadn't had a camera up there in three years and the first week i had a buck like every single day he's just hanging out middle of the day noon 
all day long right here in this little three acre prairie and the first day i went down there and sat i, sh- I shot him i mean he's like living here and and he's probably living here during the day going to my neighbor's food plots at night you know is that something because this came up in another episode i'd heard not on our podcast but a different podcast like old homesteads you hear guys so this is something you hear very common that like a big buck will live around an old homestead and uh it's because the open area they kind of grasslands and stuff that typically you'd find around an old homestead um and maybe some bigger timber around there and some people think it's based off because it's secluded less no people really go to these old homesteads but i'm wondering it's because the native habitat and forage there is probably potentially a lot higher quality than that closed campy forest you know a couple hundred yards away or even quarter mile away yeah if it's still open and it's just not getting mowed or managed that's that could be there could be a lot of food there that makes sense but um you know what as you know you mentioned food plots earlier um that's one of the things with food plots is is this like food plots are great they're great supplements certain times of the year but is is that is it going to provide sedges for turkey to eat in the spring is it going to provide native grasses for them to nest in is it going or for a quail to use or for deer to bed down in is it going to provide forbs like is it providing year round every month is nature doing its thing where it You've got all these successions where different things take over throughout the year and, and do their thing. Are you going to have all those? Like that's what wildlife need, and I think that's that's why I love grassland so much is because you're going to have tons of forbs coming up. You're going to have insects being attracted to that. You're going to have you know nesting areas and brooding areas, and when those things hatch, they're going to have insects to eat because you have flowers. They're going to have seeds to eat because you have you're not mowing it. I mean, it's like. It all makes sense to me. I don't know, but also let me ask you this because I've had this conversation with both Matt and Adam uh, from Land Legacy that also with more expanses of that native habitat and specifically grasslands, you have an abundance in population of rodents and small mammals that then give a prey species for your predators. So your predators are less likely to potentially target your deer and turkeys and everything else because there's a lot more small mammals for them to target and yeah, birds. Those are like buffer species, you know, that, that uh, provide food for for those predators. I mean, that's what, like, coyotes, like, they're mousers. Like, that's what they want. They want to eat mice. That's what they're looking for. If you don't have a place for them to eat mice on, their, on your property, uh, a grassland, then you probably don't have good nesting habitat either or a good fawning habitat. So your 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 next generation's laying out there in the open and that's an easy meal for coyotes. So they're of course they're gonna take that opportunity. I mean they 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 don't have the mice that they're looking for there, so why not take the opportunity on eating, you know, a a, a fawn or whatever. But mm-hmm. that's the way I see it is if you have the whole like it the whole man, these ecosystems are so complicated but they're they're really not if you just make sure you have them intact and you have a little bit of everything there and you have a lot of diversity everything just like plays a role but if you take away something if you mow everything down man you're doing something like you don't even realize what you're doing i mean it's there's so many things that those uh, taller grasses could have provided that will i'll never even understand all the things that those provide but um, you know, I don't know, just leaving them be and letting them do their thing and, and promoting biodiversity. I think that's the key. I mean, that's the, that's the starting point. If you want more wildlife and you want your property to be more, um, you know, beneficial for wildlife, then start with making it more biodiverse. And that starts by learning what you got and walking around and trying to identify stuff. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we've had our own experiences, but we also know a lot of other guys who, from a deer hunting standpoint, have had a lot of luck in places that have some kind of grassland species or like really getting more. I'm trying to not be super specific here, (laughs) but like, but like think of stuff like, uh, shoot, I don't want to say it. Say it. Like mining. Okay. Like strip mining and stuff. Strip mining creates like a giant gash on the land and then but then you have all this grass that grows up or whatever and that like like josh and them in west virginia hunt stuff like that there's stuff like that in a lot of states and uh we just know some people i'm trying not to be that specific who've had really good luck killing literally giant bucks in places like that where like the property itself might not be all strip mines but there's one on the property and they hunt it and they just hammer good ones like every year or something you know, and and I've always wondered if that's what it was. Like it's drawing in those bigger deer. And it's just good security cover. Also, that super low quality soil there that's not good for forest allowing forest to take over. Mm-hmm. So that allows it to stay grassland for a little longer. And so those species fill in because a lot of our native prairie species are really good at growing in poor soils. That's why you see them on these barrens and glades. Um, so they can grow in places like that, but the trees have a little harder time. And so they can stay grassing for a little longer. That's like a, a form of disturbance, I guess. And also, I guess, when say like someone had a property that was very, very rocky soil, and you know, I've seen people like, oh man, well, how do I build up my uh, soil depth and quality of soil and all that kind of stuff? It's almost like the whole idea of opening up that canopy, and if the trees aren't quality enough trees because they don't, they, you know, they can't, they they're stunted, they can't put on, you know, straight poles. Like there, there's not the quality of trees that a lot of people would be looking at for, for lumber uh, or just for overall, you know, timber harvest, opening it up and in kind of turning some of that back into a more prairie landscape, not only would probably add more value to the property because again, the timber's really not doing much for you, but again, that rocky soil, those native habitat, those native grasses and forbs can really thrive in that where a lot of other stuff can't. Yeah. And, and if you have that type of soil, you probably still have some prairie species there because those rocky areas were never really used for, for croplands. Or, I mean, it's a lot of, some of them were grazed and stuff, but they weren't really disturbed. Like our deep, like our tall grass prairies with those deep soils, all of those were destroyed because they were good, rich ground. But those rocky soils weren't, weren't ever really touched, so you can find a lot of, there's usually good seed banks there. And with that, I mean, it, that's also an advantage because, you know, looking at this, the the, um, the lens of a whitetail hunter and someone that, you know, if you have private land, you know, guys are like, well, how do I, you know, bump up my quality of whitetails on my property? Um, and, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, those rocky soils can't really provide much because you can't put food plots in very easily unless you use like a, a no-till drill or something like that. But then you're still talking about a lot of wear on equipment. But again, especially like in those areas, kind of putting a huge emphasis, which I mean, it sounds like everybody should put a huge emphasis on native habitat, but especially in those areas where like you're already struggling to put food plots in, focus on just the natural habitat and natural vegetation and let it do its thing. And that's going to provide everything it needs. Because maybe something you can talk about in addition to like that kind of conversation is the quality of forage that a lot of these species provide from like a protein standpoint. Uh, but also, you know, think of their whitetail's mind, but also like the seed that it provides again, for all these, you know, native habitat or these native species, like we're talking about Bob white quail, uh, turkeys <clears throat> and all these other, you know, songbird species that are thriving off those seed banks or off those seeds that these, you know, grasses and everything are providing. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a ton of examples. I mean, the amount of native legumes we have, 
is insane. I mean, I don't. I need. To, I need to make a list. I need to start. I need to list out the amount of native legumes we have because it's it's so crazy. You go to these prairies, man, and just last week I I found a uh, county record uh, Samson snake root down here on a prairie. That's a legume, partridge pea. I mean, you got all these wild sinas and and I mean, so many native legumes, and those are all things that are going to be you know targeted by deer, um, and and uh, you know I'm just. That's just one example. I'm trying to speak to. Uh, I'm, that's that's my sales pitch to yeah. people who are planting legumes right now. But there's a lot of other things, you know, ragweeds and other stuff. But a lot of those forbs are are desirable. Um, I mean, Alan at his place planted rattlesnake master, and it just. I mean, as soon as he put it in the ground, obliterated. And if you've ever seen uh, rattlesnake master, the oldest pair of shoes in the world was made out of rattlesnake master leaves. It's like a leather. I mean, they, it's like the last thing you'd think of a deer would eat. And as soon as you put it in the ground, it was gone, which he's got a lot of deer on his place too, but those species were just gone. Um, so, but here's the thing. It's like rattlesnake masters even getting eaten by deer. It's creating seeds. It's one of the top three pollen. I mean, a, a, attracting insects, rattlesnake masters at the top of the list. Um, so it's feeding, sometimes it shouldn't, but it's, apparently feeding the deer on Allen's place. It's providing seeds. It's attracting insects. So it's feeding three different ways. I mean, it's, that's, and then you add in a hundred other species of prairie. I mean, you're going to have something that you're, you got a whole buffet. You got a smorgasbord. You don't have to worry about if one thing fails that year, you know, something's going to, something's going to make, and there's always going to be something there to provide food well, it's yeah. like it's not have, like if your oaks don't make one year. Yeah. That's exactly what I was gonna say. It's like you know, guys complain. Well, dude, like like this past year down south where we're at, a lot of guys were complaining or just not really complaining, but they were saying, "Man, mass crop was terrible this year. Like very sparse or like no dropping of white oaks, red oaks. Like they're not really seeing much." And they're like, you know, some guys were worried from like a hunting standpoint. Like it's kind of tough to figure out, you know, a feed pattern on whitetails because you know, I'm not seeing any mass crop. But also they were a little worried about like just overall, you know, you hear guys talking about like the weight production where a lot of people have the mindset. And I mean, I, it's, a lot of people think this and I still have a thought on this. Like you have a really heavy mass crop year. There's a ton of forage at a short window of time that deer can kind of really feed up on, but it's not adding forage for later in the season. But a lot of people kind of worry about that of like if a mass aren't producing, well, now what? If my food plot doesn't produce. We have a drought or something. You know, maybe, you know, something about the native habitat, or native uh, uh, plant and forage species is it seems like they do pretty well even in those drought conditions because they're, they're I guess, more susceptible to the adverse condition. They're not susceptible, but they're they're more, uh, uh, they're less vulnerable in cases of drought because again they're native down here and they can kind of you know stay strong in those kind of periods of time that a lot of other things that you may be planning may be really suffering in yeah and and you know if that's that's all true and if you know those oaks fell i mean your your number one food source in winter is browse and so if you've got native grasslands you've got thickets you've got sunlight hitting the ground you're going to have little shrubs and trees popping up and that's, I mean, the biggest food source. I mean, in in the winter, they're hitting those brambles, those those green briars, those those uh, tree buds like crazy. And you can't get that with closed canopy forest. Most of that stuff is out of reach. Um, I mean, you'll have green briar. Green briar, briar will grow in shade, but that stuff's like the miracle plant in the wintertime. In my opinion, that's like the number one deer food in the wintertime. But um, that's... 
that's to me, you know, to me, that's what you want is a lot of brows. If you have a lot of brows in the wintertime, you're, you're going to be good. And uh, if you have it and your neighbor doesn't, then you're, you're really in luck there. So, When you think turkey calls, think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24 that's SOP24 use that promo code it'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at... Uh, 30 and 50 and then I switched to the true lock and changed from 30 to 50 and the 50 yard pattern on my gun with the true lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with Mike and Sam we were all super impressed I mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and Andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes I have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u-l-o-c-k chokes.com you can also use the promo code southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order again give true lock a shot this spring especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with true lock. Really, you could boil it down to just to like completely simplify it is like deer are so, like they're made to live in that kind of stuff. Like that's what was here before we were here. That's what they've been living in for who knows how long. Like that's they're made for that kind of thing. They're not really I mean, they're they're really adaptable so they can live in these closed canopy forests, but that's not optimal, and, you know, and neighborhoods. Yeah, and neighborhoods, downtown they parks. They your grandma's landscaping plants. I ate all my grandma's hostas. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're basically goats. I mean, they they can survive pretty much. Deer so, man. They're, they can. You can put anything out there. and If you want to really get comp- complicated about providing food for something, then try to feed a quail or, or a, you know, a turkey or a, or a ground-nested animal. But deer, man, they'll, they'll eat anything, unfortunately. Well, it kind of goes back to if you manage, say, specifically, like, you know, the the culture of quail hunting, other than hunting on preserves, like hunting wild birds has pretty much passed in the southeast. What what does Nick say uh, that he sums it up so perfectly? It's like we don't have uh, we don't have a quail hunting culture. We have a quail hunting tradition like we used to do it, you know, and some people still go do like preserve shoots like as a tradition. But there's no more culture of it, kind of like there's a culture of deer hunting. Because uh, there's there's no quail to hunt, or there's very few, and and, and I think that's where um, you know 
we got to bring back grasslands, man. Like that's the thing. It's like how do you bring back grasslands? And and I think there's there's you know when you talk about like agriculture and pastures and stuff, I think there's room there to bring back grasslands and 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 create quail habitat and, and while while doing it. But that's what's so difficult, man. Is like we just have so many places that are mowed we just don't have good grasses anymore and so that's that's a lot of what i try to do is figure out how how the heck do we bring this stuff back well in, in that case if you were to this might be an interesting conversation for us to kind of really dive into if say someone had 100 acres and you can name it maybe how it would look a little bit different up here versus maybe a little more central alabama down south deep south uh maybe like more towards the like the delta side of the state if you could like draw up what like an ideal managed property would look like, it was a hundred acres, whether you were starting fresh from a clear cut or if it was heavily timbered, what would that, in your opinion, look like for overall wildlife production from you know the habitat that we're discussing here? I've I've seen I've seen the ideal property and it's a uh, man. This place is incredible. Um, it's it's huge for one, but it's been in the same family for over a hundred years and they've been burning it. It used to be a quail plantation. I mean, they used to have quail t- quail hunts there. Um, I need to take Nick there. He would love. It. I mean, you got some old. They, they got these old kennels that are like over a hundred years old. Oh, Nick. oh, Nick would be all over that with like wood stoves in there to keep the do- like to keep the dogs water. Like it's it's so cool. But um, like it's been burned forever. It's still what it's supposed to be. I mean, you go through there and you got these spaced out trees where you know, I mean, chinka pins, Durando. Uh, post oaks, blackjack oaks, shortleaf pines, longleaf pines, just plum thickets. I mean, every prairie species you can think of. This place has like 900 species. We were calling up quail like turkeys and deer everywhere, turkeys everywhere. This place, insane. But you got these savannas and it's just like sheets of liatris and milkweeds and, and rattlesnake masters and just um, you know, silphiums and I mean, I could go on and on hundreds and hundreds of species just blanketing the ground. It's just color throughout the year. You could look across there, just different colors. It's insane, but it was, it's incredible for wildlife and it shows. And it's because they still burn and it's still the same, you know, same property it's been for hundreds of years, pretty much. So, so, but to, to give the listeners even more of a, a visual idea of what this looks like, if you were to stand there and look out there, like what is like the, the the trees look like? As in, like how spaced out they are, how much grassland? Like if you were like maybe it's a mosaic. It's and that's how our grasslands in Alabama were. You'd have areas that were just wide open, not a tree for hundreds and hundreds of yards. But then you might have an area down by a river that's close to canopy forest. But then between those two, you got a mosaic of savannas that are different densities. You got woodlands where there's a lot of shrubs underneath. You got those savannas where some of those savannas are so so open that you know a tree could fall and not hit another tree some of them are dense where it's you know it's almost looks like a forest but it's got a carpet of grasses underneath it's a mosaic and the whole property is like that i mean so they don't have to if a turkey wants a certain type of habitat it doesn't have to go far to find it it's got something it needs right there in that general area i mean and every other wildlife species too but it's a you know that place has pretty much everything to offer and it's every one of those ecosystems is just super, super healthy. Now, is that something that could be done on a smaller size scale of say like a hundred acres? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm trying to do it on th- on five acres right here. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and they just you know figuring out you know your savannas and your grasslands. If it's a hilly area, 
would usually be on your ridge tops, south slopes, west slopes, east slopes, your north slopes, your your uh, hollers, your ravines, um, your bottomland areas. Those were typically where you found forests. And so, if you have a property, that's how you, that's it's going to be in your best interest to try to manage a place for what it wants to be. So that's those are the areas you should probably try to keep as a forest. But everything in between those ridge tops and those below areas or those north slopes or whatever should be a mosaic it should slowly change over to a savanna and then maybe more open to a prairie or whatever and make those mosaics to your property that's how that's how i would do it you can do that on a small acreage um it's it's kind of interesting to me how some of the like sportsman's paradise states that have like they got the big deer they got the great turkey hunting they got the upland hunting it's like kansas nebraska eastern montana the dakotas and the, I guess Oklahoma too, but like those are prairie states, right? I mean, and that, maybe they don't have a lot of remnant prairie left, but they certainly have a lot more than we have here, yeah. right? Yeah, it's it's a, uh, it's kind of like uh, our prairies are disappearing, coming going from the east to the west. Like we're we've already people showed up in Alabama real early, and we destroyed ours quick, and and plus we've got the conditions here to where something can turn into a forest at like the, you know, mm. snap of a finger. It's, 20 years it's a forest um but those areas you know you, you don't have, it's a little slower for them to turn back to forests but yeah it's it's those states are just so good for wildlife and and i think that's one of the main reasons man it's just it's they still got a lot of prairie left i'm, I'm curious also about like now that we're talking about this and it seems like something that has come more to the forefront in the last couple of years uh, it's definitely getting talked about more and it's more of, of like a popular subject than it was like when I was growing up. Like, I didn't even hear about any of this stuff until like 2014, 2015 or so. Uh, I mean, what do you think the path forward would be? Because a lot of people like don't own land and they're in a hunting club or they hunt public land or, or just whatever the case may be. So, I mean, what what would be the solution to this thing? Because I feel like I see positive momentum, but it's like, what do we do with that momentum? Um, man, I, are we talking public lands? Like, is that something we could Yeah, we can talk with? public. Man, there, we have a, we don't have a lot of, like, what is it, like 93% of the state or something is privately owned, but like, yeah. that 7%, those should be, those should be examples to the rest of the public about what good wildlife habitat looks like. So, you know, encourage your public land managers to, to uh, burn, if they're not burning, because there's a, there's a lot of places especially in North Alabama that aren't burning and, and probably should be. So encourage that and encourage, you know, turning them back into what they're supposed to be. Savannah's, I mean, you got that problem, you know, Bridgestone Firestone in Tennessee where they tried to do that for quail. Instant backlash from hunters. I mean, just throwing a fit. It was hunters and it was the Sierra Club just bashing them, like, and just for for removing trees. And it's the bad trees. They're leaving the good trees, the the um, blackjacks and the shortleaf pines, the post oaks, the savanna trees, and then they're 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 bashing them for because they're they're cutting the trees down in their hunting spot, but they're making making better habitat, mm-hmm. and that's what I think every state should be doing that in the southeast is removing trees and trying to turn it back into what it once was. There's such a culture that's I think more recent, probably from like that generation group in like seventies and eighties and then on, who like associates big mature timber with like quality wildlife like not even just hunting but just like wildlife the whole idea to be able to see and have like you know not only a visual advantage while hunting but just like be able to like witness wildlife versus being in a 
an area that's say a lot more thicker or has like those plum thickets, has like those green briar patches, has like the, the different, um, you know, natural forage and, and vegetation that adds a lot more density to the cover, but adds a lot more food and landscape. It's not as pretty to look at. And a lot of people I think have the culture built in like, man, I went and, you know, cause I know exactly what you're talking about with that property. And, you know, some of the guys saying like, you know, well, I've, all, I've always turkey hunted here and these wide open, this wide open hickory flat and everything. And, you know, I don't want to see that cut and turn into grasslands cause nothing's going to use the grasslands. You know, it's like, they're just uneducated, uh, on how that was going to boost yeah. turkey numbers, boost potential quail numbers, the deer are going to thrive and everything else, uh, and actually thrive, not just live, but thrive. And from a whitetail hunter perspective, put on, again, if you're a serious whitetail hunter, have the idea that you're losing trees, but it's adding much more food on the landscape that's going to give those deer not only better places to hide, but also because I was telling you about what's going on in Arkansas. I don't know if you were able to look at that at all in, yeah. in Arkansas and them cutting and a lot of backlash. Uh, and theirs is a little bit different, uh, but it's similar. Like they're trying to open up the landscape there. But uh, people are so worried about losing trees. And I think part of it's from a deer hunter's perspective. Well, I'm not going to have a tree to sit in to shoot a deer out of. Okay. Yeah. But not understanding that the excess forage and also security cover is going to have compared to like wide open mature timber. I think that's a huge part. Like a lot of people think, oh, you cut the trees down, it's going to be a wide open field. There's going to be nothing growing in it. It's going to be short grasses. And like if it grows up like it should be and managed properly, it should be a fairly. I mean, it's going to it's going to have different height vegetation, but it's going to be thick enough that a mature buck can go hide in that. He can go feed in that. He can have a lot of security cover and then all your turkey, your quail, everything else is going to thrive off that as well. Um, and when it floods, the ducks are going to love it and everything else. Um, but I, I, it's just, it's really strange. And maybe it's because there's a lot of people that haven't had this conversation or heard these conversations yet of how that, that association that like timber is what grows again, talking to whitetails and turkeys, Timber is what allows turkeys and whitetails to truly thrive. Um, and it, it's just a, a really interesting debate that's being happening because, again, you have those guys that are out there, and then you also have people like yourself who's thriving for or, – or who's um, really speaking up for, like, the opposite of that, which is, again, bringing stuff back down to, like, a more native habitat when it comes to those prairie landscapes that everything thrives in. And it's not just, like, pretty open hardwoods you can go hang a tree stand in. Yeah, yeah, and – you know, for the deer hunter, this is this is a question I've got for y'all that kind of hammers in that point. Um, I used to shed, before I got married, I used to shed hunt just religiously, and I still look for them while I'm looking at timber and stuff. But where have y'all found sheds in the past few years? Mm-hmm. Where yep. where are y'all finding them? Like, yeah. Cutovers, grass, grassy areas, or at least on the edges of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, edges and, and, uh, and within those thickets. Like, that's when I'd put on my briar chaps, and that's how I'd find it. I mean, the thickest stuff and then the edge of that thick stuff that's where i was always finding sheds like that's where deer want to be is in that really thick stuff that's where the bucks want to be um and that's why you find sheds there because that's where they're hanging out and they got food and they got cover and that's where they're that's where they're living especially uh i mean i guess during during uh the time of year where they're dropping sheds and then you might find some out in the open every now and then and uh you know, but that's where I always find them is those those thick cover, just lots of grasses and briars and, and then on the edges of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like what you said about the public lands potentially being the example for the rest of the state uh, because uh, there's no doubt that the best way to create influence is undeniable success, basically. So if you have some public areas that are that, that really productive prairie grassland type stuff and like 
there's that's like the best place at like it's got the small game it's got the big game it's got the quality then you know other people are going to want to imitate that but is there anything that people could do with like say timber companies because that i mean to me that's kind of the name of the game in alabama at least and probably georgia and mississippi uh how how can you influence a timber company because what financial interest do they have in creating savannah no they don't they're they're wanting to farm timber and that's a totally different thing i mean they're growing a crop and so they want to grow as many trees as possible per acre um so i i don't know that's a tough one because their their goal will always be to have close canopy forests, but maybe I mean, those first few years after they've clear cut something, I mean that's that's really good habitat for about seven years, and then it becomes too close canopy, and the cycle starts over. So I don't know um, if it's a large enough property. Hopefully they're they're cutting, uh, you know, not once every fifty years. Maybe they're cutting just little portions of it, like a quarter of it. And then 10 years later, another quarter of it. And 10 years later, another quarter of it or something like that. I mean, I think putting it on a rotation like that might be the best thing for it. But mm-hmm. I feel like we see that in some of the places that we hunt, that some of the properties that are owned by timber company properties or timber company uh, companies, whether it's uh, like a hunting lease like Andrew's Club or Public Land or whatever, it seems like they do a, a decent job with that. Again, it's not nothing's ever left long enough where it's truly – closed canopy for 30 40 years it seems like they're they rotate through and there's a pretty yeah. good diversity and that's one reason why in a lot of those areas you have pretty high deer numbers and some of them produce some really high quality deer yeah. in and around where those cuts are taking place because again that expand that, that explosive growth of forage when they cut for again that that age range whether again it's up to seven years sometimes it's shorter than that depending on how quickly that grows back up and again everything gets more like a hard woody browse um but like those areas are by far the best. Then you go to some areas that are, they haven't cut in 50, 60 years. Uh, and it's closed canopy. Uh, there's places that we've hunted like that in Alabama and other States as well. Um, you know, places place I've been to in Arkansas is kind of like that where you have massive expanses of close cover or close canopy cover. And there's like a secondary story growing up, but there's nothing on the ground. There's literally zero on the ground other than leaves and rocks and yeah. old acorns that are rotten. Yeah. Um, and those are the areas that's kind of fascinating, but I, I went to areas, give an example in Arkansas this year, that was a little bit different from other places I've hunted and they are doing that. They are coming in and doing, uh, larger expanses of, they're not doing clear, true clear cuts. They're doing thinnings and leavings. I don't know what they call it, but leaving those, what it's like a, a heavy select cut where it's almost like a Savannah where they're leaving big white oaks every 150 feet, 200 feet. Like seed trees. And it, and when you got in those areas, from both a deer and turkey standpoint, they were everywhere. Like there were so many more deer. Like we were driving through those areas. I'm like, dude, we should have been deer hunting this versus the other part of some of the mountains that we were hunting a couple of years ago. Cause there's way more deer. And you can just tell I me mean, that other place we'd go to, it had none of that. It was all fairly closed campy forest, uh, older forest. And there were deer there. There's good bucks there, but it was a lower deer number. And we just go not very many miles in a certain direction and where they're managing it completely different. And it's like thriving and the deer sign was crazy and the turkeys were there and everything was there, but, and they burn it a little bit, but they don't burn it nearly as often as they probably should. Cause you've got a ton of poplar growing back up. It's all big and nasty uh, underneath uh, in the Savannah areas. But then you have spots that were a lot more grass, like more, I'm going to call it grassy for not a scientific term. Um, 
and more Savannah like. And it's like, dude, this the deer. Were, I mean, you had to be careful. Like, you were going to hit him in your truck. You're going to see him walking through the woods constantly. Uh, and it's like everything was right in those areas where all that was taking place. Yeah, yeah, and man, uh, and that's I think a lot of what some of our public land areas need to be doing. I think you know there's some areas that I mean. I don't want to mention any, but there's a. I was on a WMA a few weeks back, and man, I was super impressed with it. They've been doing a lot of that, and they had a lot of savanna stuff. I mean, the diversity there was really, really incredible. I mean, I honestly didn't think we had a public land that good in the state with that much plant diversity, and and you know the wildlife. I think populations show on that area, but um, there's a lot of a lot of also there's a lot of other public lands I think around here that can could take some advice from that and do a lot of that because there's a lot of closed canopy and around here they it grows up in privet underneath and then mm-hmm. and then you know on swan creek where i worked man it was just like a tornado came through and it blew all those big pines over and then you just got a giant privet thicket and nothing can walk through it it's it's just uh awful but uh that's uh you know a lot of those places i think using fire you don't have those invasives and so you got those if something like that does happen or thinning does happen, you've got good species coming up because you haven't just been letting invasives take over underneath without fire. Let me tell you something. Talk about privet. So there was an <laughs> episode we did. God, this is probably back in 2019. We started podcast <laughs> in 2018. I was hunting a place in Tennessee. had a lot of privet. And all the big bucks I was finding were in and around those privet thickets. And I was talking about privet, kind of more positive light. <laughs> and let me tell you, did I hear from Matt and Adam. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they were like, "What the heck are you doing talking about?" Like, they're like, gonna come wash his mouth out. With yeah, soap. he's like, "What are you doing?" He's, and I'm like, "I'm, I'm like, you know." And my perspective back then was being a public land hunter. Well, I didn't have much influence, so you got to deal with what you're what you're given. But come to find out, if enough people bring it up and enough people talk about this and discuss it, and you know, go to the state, go to the different boards, and make it a big enough deal. Some different state organizations, some areas, some local biologists will take a step potentially forward. Like, hey, if enough people are bringing this up, we need to look at this and not just let it go. But, I mean, I remember, dude, I, it, it was Matt specifically was like, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> and it was very respectful. Like, he, we were talking about on the phone, but he's like, he's like, don't be talking about privilege. Like, that is that is bad. And I'm like, I get it. Like, you're going to see it come down to our farm. There's some, there's some down yeah. there. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, and like we've seen deer eat it, but you talk about like a last resort, if deer eating privet, there's some problems. So yeah, but, uh, that's this entry you brought privet. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good story. Oh, land legacy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are fine words. There. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's another thing. Uh, when you get around big rivers and I mean, whether it's the Tennessee river or other rivers that we've hunted around, usually the privet is horrible. Like I guess the water's like uh, depositing those seeds like all along the the banks when the uh, when the water gets out of its banks. Um, but a lot of people, or like myself included, like what he was talking about, a new privet wasn't great. Like it's it's not native. Uh, I don't think it provides any value for deer or anything like that. But I'm like, okay, well, like they're using it. Like it's it's what we got. But then you go to a place where it's been for a long time and. There's like, let's say you've got a couple acres of privet and there was like three or four like big giant oak trees in there and then they died. And now that privet is, you know, closed canopy. And so it's just going to be a privet thicket like forever, I guess. You can't even run fire through it. It's awful. Um, And we actually do have a native privet. Yeah. Really? I never talk about it because I know I want people to hate all privet. (laughs) I'm going to have to edit this out. Because there's, 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 well, there's. 
the privet that's native looks just like it during the summer, but it loses its leaves like like it's it's leafless for most of the winter. You know, the non-native stuff stays green almost like throughout the winter sometimes. Um, and it's this stuff's like low and stretches out. It's called like stretch privet or glade privet, and it just stretches out and it like almost lays on the ground. It never becomes like a big tree like mm-hmm. like the non-native privet. Like you got Japanese privet and Chinese privet. We got several non-native privets too, but um, yeah, those are pretty easily identifiable because they get real big. You won't see glade privet or stretch privet unless you're like have a lot of limestone or or glades on your property. So those are pretty rare. Yeah, there's a place that I've I've killed several bucks out of that's actually a glade on a WMA in Alabama, and uh, I found it, and it's within a a, a large uh, pine plantation that they, they cut probably ten years ago now. So most of it's kind of past its prime. The pine trees are big, and it's starting to kind of you know get open underneath. But these glades and around these glades are still open, and they just so happen to fall right in a big terrain feature. And let me tell you, that's a good spot. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. there's like cactuses growing Dude, in there. That's a spot we need to take you to. Yeah, you would like. There's big like, limestone rocks. Yeah, just I'd love exposed. to see that. Yeah, and I noticed it on the map oh. years ago. There was a bunch of cedars in it, and I, like you don't see many cedars on this place. And I noticed it, and then I got on this high ridge like a mile away from it, and I could see down in there my binoculars and i could see all these dead cedars and stuff and i could see these big exposed rocks i'm like what is that and so eventually we hiked in there and threw some cameras on it there's some giant trails going right smack through the middle of it got a bunch of big bucks on it hunted it the next year killed two bucks and two sits but the privet is creeping up through this glade now and it's all in the bottom of it and it's kind of starting to go up the hill, but there's big rocks, exposed rocks right there that are kind of like a barrier, I guess, where the privet just kind of stops right there. But, man, those bucks come out, and they'll walk the edge of that privet, and they'll walk right slap across those rocks. You'll hear their hooves. Dude, yeah. you talk about deer killing spot. Mm. Dude, they love it, man. That would be, that's a dream of mine, to kill a good buck on a, on a glade. That'd oh, be, that'd be, that'd, that'd we'll be get, it. We can give you a quarter. All right, dude. All right, I mean, this fall, I got you. I can't tell you how many times, though, we've been looking at, like, I think it was Jake with me. We were look. We've been looking at glades, and like here comes like a a huge doe group come walking through, and they come right through this smack dab middle of the glade, and then they see us, and they hightail it out. I mean, that happens a lot. They love walking through glades. Dude, you talk about a great trail cam spot. Is it those glades? And it's oh, like, oh yeah. One, one thing that Andrew found on one of these spots, there's like a what was? Is it a little oak or hickory or something that's grown out in that glade that had a big scrape on it? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's just it's like I think it's a black oak maybe. Uh, it's like real scrubby looking, and it's growing like on a rock. So it's like nine feet tall and like jacked but up. It's got oh, you know pretty good, pretty good size to it. I don't know. Is it sandstone or limestone? I think it's limestone. Um, but I don't know. I was thinking it might be Boynton Oak, which is a really small. All right, dude. Oak. This summer it looks like Boynton. Come on down. We'll do a trip down. Yeah, there. we're gonna go walk yeah. it. We're gonna go walk it I'll out. That'll be awesome. It, yeah. But like that's by that scrape, dude. Bucks they come through there. And again, talking from a deer hunter, just a deer. It is such a cool spot, dude. Because like. The deer come through there. The bucks check that scrape and keep on going because that glades on both sides like this kind of like ridge system. So you like Andrew, like there's a, a point off the ridge that's like a big glade. And probably the whole thing's a glade. And one reason, like I think Andrew found it too, is because when you step back from a long ways away and you can glass to a spot, you just see like there's no timber growing. Like they, there's there's pines planted there, but the pines can't grow in there. They couldn't plant it. Dude. So like you see like what's this big? Opening? I, I told someone the other day it's like the Garden of Eden in this pine thicket. Like yeah. you're you're going through this terrible pine thicket and then you come out into this glade and it's like grass and it's, it's just like beautiful. It's pretty sweet. That's so that that place I uh, that glade that I first got started at um, before I started cutting down anything. Um, 
I had a camera up there for several years, actually. Not a single buck, like no bucks on camera whatsoever. First year, I started cutting things down. I started getting a few bucks coming in. By like three or four years after I really started cutting some trees down and doing some work up there, I'd have, I had one year I had like 15 shooters on camera. I mean, it's, these are mountains. So, you know, they like, they move through and they leave, but, um, I had some real good ones on camera. Then 800 acres below it got clear cut, gone. Everything's (laughs) gone, man. For the past three or four years, nothing like has been so bad up there because they've got all the food and stuff they need down in those clear cuts. So, um, with those glades, so can you, because we're talking about terminology that me and Andrew know, but some of our listeners don't probably know, what is a glade? So it's just a really, you know, there's different types of glades, and it's they're described off the top of the rock that's there. So you got, I mean, there's dolomite glades, limestone, sandstone, granite glades, um, all kinds of glades, but, um, and it's just an area that has really shallow soil, a lot of, a lot of exposed rock. And uh, barrens are more like dry year-round. Um, glades are dry in the summer, and they hold water or seep have a lot of seeps during the during the winter time. Um, so, this even this time of year, there's still some seep going on in some of those glades. And then during the summer, they're super hot and dry. So that's why you can find a lot of native species there because it takes some tough plants to stay there where it's like super wet in the winter. And then super dry in the summer. It takes some plants that are really adapted to that kind of stuff. That spot, Andrew, the mountain area we went to, there's there's that glade up there that y'all sat next to. That grassy area where the do- those does are at. Mm, yeah. Where y'all are facing back into it. Yeah, so we actually found some, I cannot say the name of it. You can't. I almost abs- just said the abs- name of absolutely it. Absolutely don't. I absolutely cannot say it. It's super secret. Yeah, but there's but glades it, up no, in that area. I was going to say, that there's listeners. I mean, there's listeners <laughs> I know about it. It's kind of funny. I don't know, man. Like, people think they know where we hunt, but they kind of don't. Not anymore, at least. Anyways. I saw Jacob road hunting this year. <laughs> I heard he's a spotlighter. Yeah, that's why he likes those clear cuts. <laughs> that's right. Old boy never met a corn pile he didn't like. <laughs> Even golden acorns. Man, I don't need no native habitat. I got corn piles. We'll have listeners else that will say that. <laughs> Actually, probably not. Our audience isn't like that. But but no. So, oh, are you gonna pull up on the map? No, I'm just gonna pull up a uh, photo. Pull up a photo, but so, I'll pull it up but, on the map. But this, so this glades on top of a, a big ridge line, and uh, and it's a spot that when Andrew went and scouted, there would be buck sign, all rub scrapes all the way around this glade, and the does would bed out in the glade, and it runs kind of like the spine of this big ridge. Um, and it's really interesting because it's a weird. You when you look at the map, you can't really see it all that well. But, like, when you get there, you're like, this is... Because you're coming through, like, big, open, hardwood timber, and then you hit this thing, you're like, what is this? And, like, the deer activity in this one yeah. spot was just crazy. Man, I bet you, um, like, when there's sun out, I bet you that they like it in there. Um, cold days? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, we... So, we were burning a field one time, and it was a bunch... It was just all native warmers and grasses, five acres of it, and it had... This five acres was square, mm-hmm. and it had bush hogged lanes cut into an X, and so... It was like, it had four little squares. It was one big square cut up into four little squares. Mm-hmm. We were parked in the middle, and we lit one square on fire. And we had been, just while I was on fire, we made several loops around the entire field. And then I was standing on top of the ranger, watching this first little fire go towards the other blocks. And I look over, and in that block was, like, one of the biggest bucks I'd ever seen. This is on public land. And, and gets up, runs beds back down in another block this is five acres a tiny field man like i could see him bed down 
And then so like I walked over there and jumped him. He runs back towards the fire, beds down again, like right next to the ranger. Like we couldn't get him to leave this field. And it was a cool, it was a really cool sunny day. Uh-huh. And he wanted to be there, man, bad. Wow. Couldn't get this buck to leave for nothing. We're, we're going to need a pin after this. Yeah. <laughs> need you drop yeah. our Onyx pin for yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> no, that is, uh, that's, uh, dude, that, that is so cool. But I mean, that's the thing that, um, like we've come to realize without even like no, I mean I've I've known you at least through social media for probably four maybe four years four or five years before really ever you were doing native habitat projects because um, I remember that first that forty acre parcel you were talking about when you were first doing stuff out there and doing something was is there a landowner next by you were doing some stuff in their yard um, it, I remember you talking about do you when you were first doing a couple videos on that glade uh, when you kind of had found that glade and there was something I thought there was a local laying under close by yeah. that had some kind of vegetation, some kind, some kind of uh, like rare plant species um, that you're doing some kind of like work with. Like, Hey, we all need to save this. Like, like talk about mowing it or something. Yeah. There's a lot of, the, there's, there's a lot of those. A lot of that, <laughs> I do yeah. a lot of that stuff. Now. But, um, but those glade areas, those open grassy areas are so fascinating from like a hunting standpoint, because like there's a lot of places we've hunted, especially when you get in that rockier soil, it's like, you just walk upon them. Like you'd be coming through the woods and like you hit like a weird bench or ridge line, and all of a sudden you walk into one. Like, Oh, this is kind of weird. And previously before, like really, I didn't really know much about glades until you started talking about them. But like, I just thought they were just, again, there's a little rocky soil area. You can't nothing grow. Like, okay, this is kind of cool, but didn't know like what the, what it meant for like habitat and plant species and, and habitat diversity. But it's like the more like you hear about them when you go in the woods, like I see them, pretty often in a lot of spots we go and hunt yeah um like just randomly and again it's one of those things that you don't really typically see them on the on the aerial imagery because a lot of times they're not very big they might be like a quarter acre and with the big mature timber around it it kind of closed the campy around where like on an aerial imagery you can't see it but when you go in there you're like oh this is a cool little spot yeah um a lot of them are getting closed in and need opened up a lot of cedars take over well, I, I, there used to be a glade on a private place we hunted, uh, actually right next to Tannehill State Park. Um, and looking back, we didn't even know what it was back then. We're like, oh, look at all these rocks, and it's open. Uh, but it was like a pretty big one that's up there on Shades Mountain. And uh, me and my buddy Colton were walking around in it, and we found so much deer sign in that glade. And then we found like a old freaking like stubby Budweiser bottle from like the 60s that still had beer in it. It was pretty cool. It's like nobody had been out there in like so long. It was sitting on a rock. There's some weird correlation between glades and trash dumps. Every glade around here, just tons of trash piles on them. And I don't know if it's just because it doesn't disappear into the soil like a lot of places, but I think it's because the people look at these places as like trash land they couldn't do anything with. Mm. So they just dump their garbage there. So much garbage always on. There's always garbage on glades. Yes. So, I w- I sometimes it's, sometimes it's cool garbage. So one thing I want to talk, I want to get in a discussion about cedars real quick. Oh yeah, yeah. Why do cedars seem to thrive in glade areas? Because it always seems like most glades we come to, there's always cedars there. They're really efficient at just sucking up water. I mean, so um, that's why they can grow on just straight rock. And really, that rock is where they're naturally supposed to grow because um, they can't handle fire. But without fire they even start taking over the places where they're supposed to grow. And so it's they're not supposed to grow in that density. And so they're really sensitive to fire. I mean, as soon as a fire gets near one, I mean, it'll either go up in flames or it'll brown it up real bad and kill it. The next time a fire comes through, it'll just totally kill it. Um, and they just have that really thin bark. So without fire, they tend to take over. But that's where they just like to grow. They just love that thin, rocky soil. 
So the glade at my uncle's farm, the one that I wanted to have you and Alan come out and look at, it's like a, it's almost like it's on the hillside. It's like you got some of those big limestone rocks at the top and it kind of terraces down. Um, and it was like covered in cedars. I mean, huge cedars all over the place. And I was telling my uncle to come through and, and cut a bunch of them. Uh, but even before he cut them, that was like the number one bedding location on that property. And it's not a very big property. It's like 89 acres or 90 acres. But like that hillside, and it's kind of like a, it's like a western southwest facing slope. Uh, but it's like that area, if there was a mature buck on the property, he was bedding in that location. Even before he cut. Now when he cut it, you know, they'll bed on the backside of some of those brush piles and stuff. But he's got, he needs a burn. He's talking, she's trying to try to burn it this year. Um, but it, it was and we always call it the rock garden. So growing up, even today, he calls it the rock garden. We all call it the rock garden. Like, oh, I'm going to go sit in the rock garden. And, like, you could sit down there on those, those like, those those rocks. You'd, like, sit down there those rocks, and there's a little food plot down the bottom right there, down the, the bottom of the creek drainage. And, like, all those deer just compiling out of that freaking glade, dude, out of all those rocks and come out there and feed, and they'd go right back up into that stuff. And they never would typically come out the top. They'd always come right down through the bottom of it. Um, I think there's a place down near Tuscaloosa called Rock Garden. Somebody's telling me about that's a glade. Okay. So that I wonder if there's a, people call it I, I think, rock garden. I think they just it, it was a family thing. Like I know my, he said my great grandmother, his grandmother would call it the rock garden. They, Probably because that's all you can grow there. Yeah, it's it's again it's like trash trees. Like nothing like nothing could get very big over there. Like there's no big timber other than cedar. Cedars is the only thing that could grow. Like it's a decent size in that location. So like nothing could grow. So they just, yeah they call it the rock garden. But um, it it's interesting. And now actually thinking about it, I'm trying to think. There's another glade on the property on another side. Like the limestone, like the big limestone sheets and stuff. Um, but it, it's, dude, it's it's a very interesting area. But for whatever reason, that was always the location. If a mature buck was going to be on the property, he was bedding in and around that location. Pretty much most of the mature bucks he's killed out there has all been within 100, 100 yards of that general location. So Yeah, it's it's weird. They just love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. It's like it's the one area that, again, it seems like that's where – you know, those species, those forage species can grow yep. that aren't being, you know, sprayed with glyphosate or anything like that on the property or being tilled over or whatever. Um, and again, that is it, really interesting. But again, kind of getting back to like a, a land manager's perspective, like if you have a glade on the property, like if someone wanted to like make that glade thrive, especially for like wildlife, but also like those species out there. I mean, is that one of those things you just run, start running fires through there and kind yeah, of open it up and, around it? Yep. Yeah, and sunlight, bringing sunlight in, but really it's important that you know what you're looking at first. So just start by like identifying what you got there. And, um, there's, um, uh, out in Bankhead, those sandstone ones are like covered in like choke cherries, which are like these fruit producing thickets. I mean, just really great for wildlife. And people would look at those and probably think there's some invasive and mow them over. So like really just try to figure out what you got first. Cause it could be some special stuff. You know, that's, that's the easiest place to find cool plants is on glades. Um, there's a, there's some timber land, timber company land in Mississippi I saw on Facebook where they had like eight different prairie barrens on this property, and some botanist got permission to come out there. And there's a ton of just rare plants on these eight different. Well, the it, the whoever's hunting using it as a hunting club, like it changed over. The new folks came in, every single one food plot, like just every one of them sprayed and killed over, and and so like that's one thing I preached to deer hunters. It's like, hey, if you've got a bunch of timber and you got one open area. Before you do anything to that open area, make sure that you know what's there because it could be better than what you're trying to do to it. And I made that mistake um, spraying off that glade up there, but just know what you got because it could be some really good stuff. 
What's a good resource for people to actually identify what's on that property? iNaturalist I is one of the best. So, like, you can, it'll tell you whatever plant is, and you can look up and see where other people are seeing that same type of plant. Um, you can, they even have projects, so like, um, for your physiographic region. So, like, I'm in, we're in the Molten Valley, so I can look up Molten Valley, and they have, like, savanna species of the Molten Valley, glade, limestone glades of the Molten Valley. And so you can go to that project. And you can see like all the glade species that people are seeing on those like limestone glades, and so that's a really cool way to learn plants and learn what you got on your property. Yeah, I actually use iNaturalist a good bit, and I, I really like it because uh, you can take a picture of something, like make an observation or whatever they call it, and you can click on the thing that's like uh, like what am I looking at or whatever it's yeah. called, and it'll give you a bunch of suggestions. And even if you're not really sure, or it might give you some like very generic thing, like whatever and but then someone can come in and confirm it behind you so like we had stuff on my mom's property and it ended up being a bird's foot violet or something like that and i took a picture of it couldn't quite tell which one it was and then like two days later i look and two people had left some kind of comment and they were like oh that's this yeah and so once two people have verified it then they can use that for research and so like just knowing the range map of different types of plants and stuff so um, that's one of the cool things with iNaturalist is they use that all your observations or for research. You can also obscure it. So like if you find something really rare and you don't want people to know where it's at, you can obscure it so people can't find it or you can make it private or mm-hmm. or whatever. But. Yeah, because you can also, hey, look, here's a hot tip. When I'm going to a new place, we were, we were going to hunt a new place this fall, and I was like, I couldn't figure out what kind of trees I was looking at before we went because it's hard – it's not close to the house, so it's not something I can just go scout all the time. But I'm like, if this is what I think it is, then mm. it's going to confirm a lot for me. And I got on iNaturalist, and I zoomed over there on the map, and people had made a bunch of observations in there. And I clicked on one of them, and it was the plant that I thought I was looking at on the map. I was like, boom, e-scouting yeah. pro right there, dude. That's a tip, let me tell you. If you're wondering what the place looks like, get on iNaturalist and start zooming around that map, and you'll see. Like, people will make all kinds of – especially if you're if you're hunting, like, a national forest or something where there's other people besides hunters out there. It, it can uh, actually be extremely helpful. Yep. That's a good tip. Download on Android. I, I was gonna say I don't have it. I don't have it on my phone. Ah, you're missing I, I've, out. I've done the whole. So iPhone. I don't know if you like on iPhone. If, if you take on your iPhone, if you take a photo of something, it's got a little like learn more button, and it seems like it's kind of accurate. I've used it in Nick's farm a good bit. Yeah. Have you been up there to his place? No, not okay. yet. But his place since he's burned, it's been fascinating. Kind of seeing like what's come up when he's been he's been working the state on like because it's like a thirty acre property, mixed uh, probably twenty of its pasture and twenty of its like a willow thicket around a pond and some bigger timber on the backside of it and just seeing like what's been coming up after he's burned and like how lush and green but also all the animals out there dude is crazy like he, he was talking so his neighbors a couple of his neighbors have uh have uh big gardens and uh when he the first year he's been there a couple of years now the first year he was there he let everything kind of grow up and not mow it because the previous owner had just kept everything mowed and it's in an area that is uh dominated by nurseries like like yeah. just nurseries uh, doing all kinds of different plants and everything. So there's not a ton of like great forage because they just mow everything else around it. Well, he let it grow up in that first year. All of his neighbors were commenting about like how they hadn't had any deer. And there's a bunch of deer up there. Hadn't had any deer in their gardens. Like they've had issues in the past. 
Come to find out, they've been on his place feeding every day and night. Yeah. And now that he's done this burn, he's like, dude, there's deer everywhere there. <laughs> and this is crazy. Like a small property too. Small property up against, it's like a T intersection of a road. So it's not like you got a bunch of timber and stuff around yep. it. Long, skinny property. And it's like the deer are just hammering it and they're not touching, they're not touching their gardens anymore, which is fascinating. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, uh, but anyway, but no, it's been super interesting. Now, um, one of uh, one of the last things I have, Kyle, is um, just from kind of getting back to a uh, uh, land manager's, uh, I guess, perspective on, again, do's and don'ts. If uh, someone's listening who owns a little property, whether it's 10 acres, it's 100 acres, 500 acres, whatever, if they wanted, again, looking at through a deer hunter's, pers- uh, a deer hunter's mindset, but also it's going to benefit all wet whitetails or I mean it was all wildlife your number one thing would be I guess consult potentially with you guys or somebody about potentially opening up some of that landscape and again if it's mostly closed canopy kind of seeing what could be done in order to kind of grow some of that you know native habitat like what, what would be kind of like a conversation that would look like and maybe like some of the examples you you have with some of your consultations yeah so um, you know it just really it's, it depends on the property so a lot of times you know folks can have um, you know, somebody come in there and do a timber harvest on it, and and that's that's the best way because the landowner makes money off of it, and they they uh, reach their goals. And sometimes you got to go in there by hand and remove stuff or do hack and spray, and it's just a uh, it just varies. And so we do we do a good bit of uh, consulting, but um, it's we're we're also just overwhelmed as well. So if uh, you mentioned that you have a glade on your property, I always usually usually put those at the top of the list. Bump them up. I'm like, I like glades, so I'll go check that out. So, um, But, uh, yeah, that's it just really, I don't know, it, it depends. Every property is different, man. It's like there's no two are the same. And and uh, But most of the time what places need is they need sunlight and they need fire. And so that's pretty pretty common across every every property I've looked at. So, but uh, yeah, if you if you want a consult, you can reach out on our website, so nativehabitatproject.com. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll link that below on the podcast, uh, and also uh, follow along with you on social media. I know you got a great big old social media presence. So, uh, where can people find you there? Um, native at Native Habitat Project on on uh, Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and and uh, TikTok's Native Habitat or Native Plant Talk, but. You don't have to. You don't have to use that app. So if you don't want to. Just Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, YouTube. So, uh, but yeah, that's where you can find us. Awesome. All right, sweet. Well, Kyle, greatly appreciate you joining us for the podcast, listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode and maybe want to hear even more details about some of these topics, I know uh, you guys have a podcast. Are y'all still kind of working on kind of getting scheduled back up and, and yep. running with episodes? But y'all have a bunch of episodes out right now, and again, people can probably find it on most listening platforms. Yeah, that's uh, the Native Habitat podcast. And so we're, uh, Jake and I both had newborns in, uh, right at the beginning of the deer season. So we're, uh, we're just now starting to, we've got a bunch of uh, podcasts that we're about to drop and then get that back up and going again. So, uh, yeah, you can listen to us there. We'll talk, talk about all sorts of stuff. So awesome. Nice. Perfect. Awesome. Well, appreciate everybody listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Again, quickly trying to make our way to a thousand reviews on Apple. Uh, go leave that review there. Share this episode with a buddy, and even you know, especially a buddy that's maybe a landowner, maybe it opens up an interesting conversation with you guys. But other than that, we'll catch y'all back here on the next episode from the Southern Outdoors and Podcast.
Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.